Welcome to the latest episode of The Grower and the Economist. I'm Michelle Klieger, The Economist. And I'm Peter Conjoyan, The Grower. Each week, we team up to tackle the biggest challenges facing small and medium-sized growers. We're one part grower and one part economist, just like your business. Well, today's guest on the gate is Thomas Ford, an extension specialist in in the Penn State Extension Service. Tom recently wrote an article in the publication eGrow that focused on profitability and issues caused by supply chain disruption. So that being a topic Michelle and I have covered several times, we jumped right on this and invited Tom to join us for this episode. Tom, thanks for taking time. Welcome to the gate. Well, I can appreciate the opportunity to uh, participate in this podcast. Uh, My undergraduate degree is with University of Maryland. I have a BS in ornamental horticulture. And then I pursued and actually have an MBA from Frostburg State University. So I tried to combine the horticultural training with a little bit of business background. So when we look at my career, um, I've actually spent 39 years in extension. I started out with the University of Maryland for 12 years in Central Maryland. Uh, worked with everything from cut flowers to vegetables to greenhouse crops. Then I went to North Carolina State very shortly for uh, a period in uh, Kinston, North Carolina. And I was working with tobacco growers to diversify to high value horticultural crops. And then I left and as my some of my former colleagues said, I joined the dark side. I became an administrator and I juggled a county extension director role with Penn State for the better part of 16 years and continued to program at the same time in commercial horticulture. And then when the opportunity uh, presented itself to get back to commercial horticulture full time, I took that opportunity and I've been working over a sort of a nine county area with both greenhouse production, fruit, vegetable production, nursery, turf, anything horticulturally related, I pretty much tackle. And my largest audience group that I work with is uh, the plainstick growers, uh, Amish, Mennonite, some German Baptists as well. Many of those growers work with high value horticultural crops, especially floriculture crops and greenhouses. Excellent. And you reminded me that the two of us, you and I overlapped for the blink of an eye two years that I was there at Maryland. But uh, this episode this morning is is a joint three-way Fear the Turtle conversation, right? Right. Fear the Turtle. <laughs> so thanks for that. Michelle, I think um, you, I know you have a few questions. Why don't you get the conversation started and we'll see where it goes. Sure. So I was wondering what prompted you to write this article. Was it the conversation with the people that weren't able to buy the hanging baskets or, you know, ordered the plastic containers six months in advance or nervous? Or was it other factors besides just conversations with growers? I think what the greatest impetus was, was dealing and having a discussion with growers. Um, I had to lead a sort of a panel discussion slash serve as a moderator and basically sort of on the fly, pull questions out to feed the, the you know, distinguished panel of both growers and industry representatives in front of an audience of about 200 people. So, you know, when you're in that spotlight and you're trying to figure out what's the best question I can ask someone, uh, 
So I'm feeding questions, I'm processing the information, I'm trying to prompt greater response. And then when I came down to develop my blog article for eGrow, you know, we very rarely in eGrow touch on business type topics. And uh, even though I have my MBA, it's not something that I have typically have relied on on a regular basis. But a lot of growers have marketing questions, they have purchasing questions. So even though I don't usually crunch numbers a lot, what I usually do with growers is I do try to impart some type of business advice to them. So what I try to do is take what was learned in that discussion and then take the other real world examples from networking with growers and put it together to craft that blog article. I was actually nervous with it uh, when I put it out because it is something that is different than what we typically offer with an eGrow. Has, have you gotten good response from it, just going that different direction? Uh, no, actually no response at all. Okay. Um, uh, we, what we usually find, uh, I've, I've worked on farm management as well. And um, I'm sure Michelle probably knows Jim Hansen at the University of Maryland. Jim and I go back a long time as well. And what I always found with farm management is that people don't really want to hear about farm management and business management topics. So usually you have to do kind of a bait and switch. You know, you present the production materials and then you slide the business management stuff in there so they have to hear it. And then hopefully it sinks in and then the light bulb goes off and they say, yep, I need to do this. I need to do that. Tom, I've I've explained to Michelle where through my generation, you and me, as we communicate with growers over these decades, we were taught. I was taught in, in my graduate program at Ohio State. The last paragraph of an article had to have some economics in it. And it's kind of mirroring or echoing what you just alluded to, that we have to force feed the, the bait and switch. I love that, that phrase. Would you describe the article as a warning that like these supply chains or these, you know, cost increases are coming and could harm your business? Or do you think a lot of people have already seen that, that change? I think in some cases, some of the growers have seen the changes, but they didn't realize the, I guess you said, what depth they are and um, how bad it, it is and how bad it may get. We're looking at the crisis in Ukraine right now. We have no idea as far as what disruptions we're going to see on top of the pandemics um, that we're dealing with. So when when you start talking to growers, there are a lot of growers that sort of insulate themselves and they have no idea what a cost, what, what really what their costs are. Um, I always start off a conversation when I'm talking about nutrient management because again I work with vegetable crops as well. And I always ask when I go into a room to talk about nutrient management, I say, "Who knows what a pound of nitrogen costs? Please raise your hand." And it's dead silence. A good grower doesn't matter if it's a greenhouse crop, a vegetable crop, or growing corn. They have to know what a pound of nitrogen costs. And they, they don't. And we see people that pay anywhere from 33 cents a pound of nitrogen to up to $159 a pound for nitrogen. You know, it's crazy. All, and, you know, sometimes we buy the bells and whistles, but it's still nitrogen. And so when we think about with a lot of the small growers, there's a lot of small growers that, especially on the plain sex side, they don't want to raise prices. You know, they feel bad for their customers. Now, we're not going to raise prices because they have to drive all the way out here. Our business plan is built on being the, the low-cost provider in our market. The problem is with the realities of the new cost structures and supply chain issues, they're not going to be around if they don't do something about their pricing. 
And they also hurt the competitiveness of the other growers because the other growers then have to, again, reduce their prices to stay competitive back in the marketplace. So we shrink our margins more and more. One of the things that stood out, and you mentioned it in the article, is this not wanting to raise prices. And I, you know, Bridget Behe had said something similar um, about this, you know, price compaction. And one of the counterpoints that, that I've seen, and maybe it's not in horticulture, is that with the amount of disruption going on, consumers are willing to accept price increases right now. And so like if you go back to 2008 or 2011, we got used to seeing that fuel surcharge on everything. And so consumers expected it. And so hearing, you know, it just points out how important this conversation is right now for growers because this is their window, right? The pandemic allowed that price change. Fertilizers is... I mean, it's the front page of Bloomberg every day. So whether you're in this world or not, you're seeing it. And so there's an opportunity and I don't know how long it's going to be. Well, I think with when we look at growers is it, they're always afraid about their neighbor. Um, we had a we have a, a, a greenhouse operation in one of my counties that I work with. And the way they're going to set their prices for 2022 is to get all their price lists from all their competitors and then base their prices on their competitor. But yet they admit to a colleague that their costs, because they're a small operation, are 60% over last year's cost. But they're going to base their prices on their neighbors rather than calculate their own costs for their product. That, that's just crazy. And then when we looked out across the room of 200 people a few weeks back and we said, who's going to raise prices? Okay. We had about 10 hands that creep crept up in the audience. So either they don't have a good handle on their cost or they're so afraid of this relationship. And I believe you're correct that consumers expect the prices to go up. They realize things are changing. And as they change, you know, it's, it's part of the part of the you know daily life. You're going to expect to pay more for syrup, expect to pay more for milk. It's part of the economic times that we live in right now. And we have to make sure we pass that cost on to our our consumers, our, 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 our market. And as much as the cost structure has changed, I think the value proposition for the consumers has changed. I mean, that idea of going to the farm, of not going to a grocery store, of investing in your local community, of seeing that, you know, job growth, all of that. Well, we, we talk about the ability to pivot and we, we prided ourselves with many of our extension programs across the nation our ability to pivot from in-person learning to distance education very quickly. But we also did really give a lot of credit to our greenhouse and floriculture operations who also had to pivot dramatically in order to recapture the market. And so when we look at this, this relationship with customers, kind of alluded to the fact that, you know, we're, we're, we have a greater experience. Most operations have created a greater experience for their shoppers today than they used to have. It's just not a transactional thing. And we, we sometimes sort of fail to realize that, you know, there's a transactional relationship and then there's a true sort of friend relationship, a personal relationship. And so a lot of our smaller operators have capitalized on this, this more personal relationship. And so really when it comes down to it, it the price isn't the issue. They can raise their price 25%. It's not going to impact their customer base. It's that interpersonal relationship they develop with their customers. 
Hey, a comment to the both of you as I listen to you ask each, uh, ask questions and and uh, and answer. Michelle and I and and Tom, I think you probably have experienced or felt the same way. During, as COVID set in, we started the podcast, we started the education because we wanted to help small growers navigate the supply chain disruption. We were pleasantly surprised through the first year of COVID that that first season, greenhouse operations did really well. And hearing you talk about supply chain, even bringing international news in Ukraine and all of that into the discussion and how it affects us, the price of nitrogen, the pound of nitrogen, I'm going to share that as I and, and, and will give credit to you as, as I you know, ask that question, Tom. That's a wonderful question to, uh, to focus. I'm, I'm sensing that the growers now, having gone through a successful year of the pandemic, are lulled into a false sense of confidence and comfort. And this supply chain disruption that's brought the three of us together today, this it's not done yet. We're not out of the woods. No, and unfortunately, it, it, I think it has created that false sense of security. Uh, if we go back sort of the pandemic year, 2020, we had lots of issues as far as with greenhouse operations and different rules and regulations with state government. We were masking, do we shut down? How do, how do we operate? And so the first couple months of the pandemic, we had greenhouse operations actually threw plants away. Um, they couldn't sell them, they couldn't market them. And then when things started opening back up, then the market exploded. One of my smaller growers indicated that he was very worried. Um, he, he already had dug a financial hole for himself the last five years by holding price, not passing on increases to his customers. And he was, as he said, really in to the point in time where he was going to struggle to survive. Pandemic hit, you know, he could hear the bells tolling for the life of his operation right there that early um, pandemic year. And then things changed. Everything opened up. People thought about gardening again. People started growing vegetable crops again. And so we go from about April 1st of 2020 throughout the rest of the year, he basically generated enough that he dug himself back out of his hole. And 2021 reinforced that. So in his situation, he was able to pay down debt, basically recover his financial position, and then actually make some of the improvements and such he needed to do to stay competitive in the marketplace. On the other side, I have small growers that saw this great boom, who were in a better capital position. And what they've decided to do is we're going to double our space. We're going to triple our space. And they're acting like this is going to be an elastic market that there's no end to the profitability. And so we have all this greenhouse, all this infrastructure that's gone in. And these are small growers. So it's there was 3,000 foot here, another 6,000 square foot there. But it still adds up to a significant amount of floriculture crops. And what they're doing in my corridor is that most of these plants that growers marketed through produce auctions. And so there are 16 produce auctions in the state of Pennsylvania. So they're flooding the market with all these floriculture crops with no wholesale accounts, no direct market accounts, retail amounts, retail accounts. So all going through largely a, a produce auction. And what's going to happen is the prices are falling already. Um, the prices are falling, and we're going to see that glut in the market impact their profitability. And they're ill-prepared because they don't have the capacity to, to look ahead and say, you know, I have to, you know, get 100 cases of mum pots or whatever because of a supply chain issue. And so we have right now, is at an operation last week, a small Mennonite grower, and he was telling me 
they have extended family members in the Lancaster, Pennsylvania area. And they're calling each extended family member that has a greenhouse operation saying, I can't get any mum pots. What am I going to do? Do you have any mum pots you can sell me or lend me, borrow, whatever? And so we're already at the panic button for some small operations who don't have the supplies in hand to continue their normal base level production in 2022. You, you and I can go back in the blink of an eye to the Great Recession. And during those years of the um, late 2000 aughts into the 2000 teens, most of my effort, Tom, my, my speaking and my writing was on profitability for small greenhouse operations. And my conclusion was we were overproducing, we were oversupplying the market. And the answer wasn't what you just said so many growers are guilty of, is I'll grow my way out of it. I'll just grow more. And I spent several years in front of people down in Pennsylvania for grower meetings across the country, short course, uh, talking about how important it was to stop, stop wasting, stop the shrinkage, grow less, because that will then result in higher prices. So I think you and I have, have kind of uh, subscribed to that, that same commitment. We need to uh, help them understand profitability. You're describing the same thing. We need to tell that they need to hear the truth. And it's not as easy as just growing your way out of it and building more greenhouses. Some, there's some operators, some clientele that call me the Grim Reaper. Okay. Um, and it's, 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 in some cases, I I'm, I'm tend to be pragmatic yeah. in my approach, but they have to realize that they have to evolve their businesses and it may mean growing less. So uh, the best example I can give you, when I, when I deal with a new operation, I always tell them, no matter what you think, if you're going to grow, if you think you're going to grow 100% retail that first year, you know, plan on 80% of your product going at least wholesale. You're not going to develop an operation that's going to be 100% retail. If you do, you're going to go broke. So the other thing that I do is, is that where they say don't like numbers, uh, most of our growers, they do like to have discussions on marketing and building relationships. So that's the soft pedal that we often can have with small operations. How to make them themselves relevant, how to become that destination, because that's something they, they want to hear. And so um, I have, again, working with plain stick growers, uh, one specific Mennonite family that I work with. They can't have a website uh, because of the religious beliefs. No website, no Facebook page, nothing like that. Yet people will drive 50 or 90 miles to buy plants from them. And they'll make that commute because they have become, we always talk about the rules of first, you have come first in the customer's mind. They have achieved that with their operation. They do very unique planters. They have excellent customer service. They've got demonstration gardens around there. Um, they're a destination for every person who wants to take a wedding photo or a prom photo. They put a picnic pavilion up. They hold uh, afternoon teas. So they've done all this without the benefit of some of the tools that some of our bigger growers have. Uh, but the, the key thing with them is, is that this issue of developing that interpersonal relationship with every customer that comes through the door. We had a bus tour out of Virginia that came into our area. The destination was their operation. Um, and they're only about, you know, 24,000, 36,000 square feet, relatively small by a lot of standards, but they have become expert marketers 
without all of the other tools and uh, trappings that we see with some of the other businesses because of building that build capacity to build a relationship and create a destination. I, I refer back to the late, great 80s when everything was, you know, just chugging along. And at that point, I used to say to small growers, it's all about quality and service. And largely in the decades since, based on the wonderful research our colleagues have conducted at, at the university level, the quality is no longer a differentiator because our large wholesale growers grow some pretty high quality materials. So it's no longer enough to just have a better plant to differentiate oneself. So I, I think what you're, you're sharing with us is it's that other part. It's that service. It's that relationship building. Right. And the other thing is I think we also have to think about some cases, the working relationships we have with our competitors. So the area where this, that one operation um, exists, there are probably about 15 to 20 operations that compete in the marketplace. There are about five to seven of them that work together and they sponsor what they call plant hopping weekends. Okay, and these are all plain set growers and people are known, they call them plant hoppers and they come in and they go greenhouse to greenhouse to greenhouse. It's like a pub crawl for, for plant, plant yeah. folks. And they basically hit the valley, they spend in the restaurants, they hit all the other attractions that may be in the community, but they'll do this. And then they do a country market tour in the fall and the same type of thing. That's when they're going to move the Christmas cactus and the Kalanchoes and all those sorts of things. But they're all part of these larger sort of informal groups that collectively market together. And because of the uniqueness of the corridor, while you're plant hopping, you may be able to go hit a farm that has, you know, uh, raw milk cheeses. So they kind of look at where we can derive synergy to create a marketing event. And again, this is typically with operations with no website, no Facebook page. Again, very unique in, to this corridor. Well, and then you to get there, you've got the power of word of mouth, which is still probably at the end of the day more valuable than targeting ads. It, it, it's, it's genius from a, from a marketing standpoint. So when you, it would be, it'd be nice for uh, Extension or university folks to take credit for that, but this is something that they developed themselves. You mentioned that the groups have this informal working relationship and that they're also concerned about pricing below their, are those two linked or is it competition within the whole 20 operations? Like does that co-marketing influence the pricing side as well? Well, it, it also depends on the operation. Younger growers and newer entrants into the marketplace tend to underprice. Okay, they're worried about competition. They're worried about what their neighbor. Those that are more mature growers, more seasoned growers, they're not worried about being competitive with the price. They're selling, you know, that our product is better. Our experience is better. You're going to get better sales, better service, better relationship. So we can be 25% more than some of those other folks there. And they have created that persona but it's the newer entrants, the ones that are coming in, in many cases, they're the ones that are more worried about the pricing capacity, the pricing aspect. And they're the ones, unfortunately, probably won't be around in the marketplace. 
um, to change gears a lot. I, earlier, you mentioned the that uh, that you're seeing a lot of produce coming to the auctions, and that there's not a lot of of that produce going into wholesale or retail. Is that something that was that an example? Is that an, an, a broad description? And why don't people seek out those wholesale or retail markets? Is there something keeping small growers out? Well. When we look at the most of the produce auctions and they, so a produce auction has, you know, $15 million in sales, anywhere from one to four, one to $5 million, maybe in floral sales. Okay. Um, each auction is a little bit different. The one that's close to me, maybe about a million and a half in sales, like maybe between 500 to $750,000 typically in, in greenhouse crops. So um, when we look at, each of the each of the auctions you have different profiles. Now, the reason why people grow for auction is that first off, as a plain set grower that's affiliated with an auction, you have a loyalty to the auction as part of the the, the religious but also cultural belief that the good of the community is worth more than the you know benefit of of the individual. And so they have this this ownership of an auction. If the auction succeeds, the entire community succeeds. So we've had situations, and again, we're talking floriculture crops, but I've had folks have contacted me and said, I want four trailer loads of pumpkins. I want four trailer loads of, of cabbage. And I've given them the, the grower, and the grower has said, well, I'm sorry. If you want to buy the cabbage, you want to buy the pumpkins, you have to come to the auction to buy it. So it'd be much easier to buy the four loads right from the farm, but price would be set it'd be easy to deal with one one purveyor but no you got to go to the auction because the belief structure is is that the good of the community is worth more than the individual's success so when we look at produce auctions they've been largely created by plain sect audiences that are growers big greenhouse growers vegetable growers fruit growers and they've created these large food hubs that also sell flowers and so as they've created those those vehicles their success or failure hinges on the loyalty of that that both the I guess you say two customer bases the the customers the grower customer and then the customers coming in to buy product and so in order to have plenty of product you have to a lot of a lot of growers but you also have to track those buyers in so you know it's kind of critical to access these communities but they have sprouted up wherever we see a plain set community they will gravitate to these high-value horticulture crops and use those auctions as a hub for product. That I've been paying a lot of attention to is, you know, these value chains and what is, you know, enticing to farmers or growers and how can they get the value they need or what channels are unaccessible. And, you know, it comes down a lot to loading docks and facilitation and stuff. So hearing that the, everybody was focused on the auction was a... Well, with, point. One, one of the things that's interesting with auctions is that all of the all of the growers typically will review the auction reports. Uh, Lancaster Farmers, one of the larger regional publications, they go to Lancaster Farmers, they look at the auction report, and they'll look at what are flats of uh, petunias running, what are hanging baskets running. So a smart grower will look at which auction there are either shortages or the prices are higher, and then what they may do is move a percentage of their crop out of their local auction to one of these other neighboring auctions, they can get a higher price. And the same thing is if I'm running a retail garden center, what I may do is say I grow, you know, 40% of my product, maybe, maybe wholesale production, I would, I would wholesale. I may move, 
you know, some of my wholesale stuff to one auction, but yet buy from another auction because the prices are lower. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I could trade the same petunia basket and put it auction one, make money at it, but yet buy other petunia baskets from another auction because I can buy them cheaper and bring them into my operation to make more money. So you have that type of wheeling and dealing that's going on behind the scenes of these auctions. And so it's a whole sort of art and a science when you're dealing with auctions. Um, I have one English grower who actually um, takes product about 65 miles away. And his one, one item that he produces are flats of basically cantaloupe and watermelon and squash in 804 cell packs. And, you know, it doesn't take long to grow, to grow those crops, you know, week, 10 days, two weeks, whatever, he's going to have them out the door. And he can't believe the amount of money he's making on 804 cells of cucurbits. And these are going into operations because they're going to be planted out in the field. Well, nobody in that market is growing these. So he's found a niche and that's where his success lies. After sharing all the fascinating information, Tom, about your, your local growers, could you offer us some pointers on profitability and supply chain disruption, just distill down to a few key points for growers outside of your area, where for Michelle and myself being in the Boston area, it's New England and the Northeast that that we kind of tailor to, or the Northern tier of the country that all share heating costs and seasonality. Well, the the one thing I would would like to share as far as when I look at um, beyond my, my regional level, I think the person who is sort of in charge with sourcing inputs is probably going to be the most critical person in your operation from here going forward. You know, it used to be you, you could deal with one supplier and wheel and deal with one supplier. You may make some veiled threats to go someplace else, but usually we're able to exact a certain price for that commodity um, or that, that plastic pot or whatever. But I think it's going to become more challenging. Um, I've got growers right now that you know, you want monopotassium phosphate, you find one bag of it in California because of supply chain issues. So we can't take, um, you know, things for granted right now. I think a producer, no matter where you're at, has to think about looking at a year, maybe two years ahead of time, looking at where they can line up the various products that um, they can bring in, the various inputs to keep their operation running smoothly. So you may have to forward contract, you may have to pre-purchase material. You may have to develop uh, some, uh, obtain some extra warehouse space for your product. But I think in some cases, you're going to have to bring more inputs in and have them on hand because you're going to continue to see these disruptions. Um, Fertilizers, three weeks, uh, I've talked to some of the suppliers, certain fertilizers, three week, four week disruption and getting a bag of fertilizer. Depending on your buying power, you know, you may pay $60 a bag for fertilizer. You may pay $25 a bag for fertilizer. Same product. All depends on who you're getting your product from. So we see wide ranges in pricing. There's some price gouging going on. So that critical person in your operation that does the sourcing, they're going to be worth their weight in gold right now because they're going to use a Rolodex. They're going to use their whatever system they have to be able to track the expenses and try to figure out where they can get inputs at and how to store them, how to get them to your operation. We always use just in time the last really probably decade in our operations. Get a supply in when you need it. Uh, don't carry the inventory. 
but I think that's changing dramatically. I've got growers right now that, you know, are looking at, let's get our pots, let's get them lined up two years ahead of time. Whatever we have to do, let's make sure we continue operation and keep those inputs rolling in. So you got me thinking there, Tom, that we can't raise our prices if we don't even have a crop to price. That's that's correct. So we have to we have to go keep going forward, um, realizing the freight costs are going to continue to go higher. So you may decide, you know what, maybe we need a local operation to go and specialize into plug production because maybe we can't afford to have plugs shipped in with 30 percent freight from Illinois or wherever they're coming from. So you may start to see some more local or regional specialization to meet the local markets. I think that's going to happen. It's going to have to happen. Even from a, a, a more global perspective, you know, uh, we've gone to these large you know, propagation facilities. Uh, well, you may end up developing more, more smaller satellites, be able to cut down on freight issues. I've got a kale operation that relocated uh, some of their production facilities uh, three years ago. And the reason was, was freight. They were foreseeing that freight was going to be a big issue. But by moving probably 400 miles closer to their Michigan markets, they could save a lot of money. Are we crying wolf, guys? You, you two are economists and, and the, the, uh, the business experts among the three of us. I don't think so. I think we're trying to point out what, what's coming. But... Tom, with the track record you and I have for speaking what we think is the truth, are people going to hear this episode and, and, and say, gee, they're just, uh, you know, flying a red flag unnecessarily? What, what's, what's your answer to that? Well, my thought process is if a grower is a realist, a pragmatist, and realizes that there are economic factors that could impact profitability, if they anticipate that things were going to have the worst of economic times before them, you know, there are opportunities there to still be profitable and make money. And so what you have to do is you have to be able to do that fast pivot. Now, with look at all the uncertainty that's going on right now with the Ukraine issue and such. What's going to be a hot button for a lot of consumers is going to be food insecurity. I expect we're going to see vegetable plant sales again be strong in 2022. I'm going to look at probably more backyard gardens, more community gardens. This food insecurity issue is continue to blow up and will probably actually be one of the major drivers in the greenhouse industry. It, it may not be a lot of floriculture crops, but it may be a fast pivot to more vegetable crops, more hydroponic production in the future. Like, yes, I think that all of these things are risks. And especially since you both have pointed out over time that a lot of growers don't understand their costs. So how can you be pricing things when you don't know what they cost? Or how can you show the sophistication in finding that arbitrage in the auctions when you don't know how your own product competes? So like bringing more awareness to that space, I think is critical. And if people don't want to hear it, I think that's a different problem. But my, I guess the way that I would say is, yes, there's going to be a lot of change but somebody always wins. And so my point would be that if you keep doing what you're doing, you might not win, right? We've talked about how small growers have struggled against large growers or, and producers and box stores. But in the last couple of minutes, Tom, you pointed out that 
there's more regional production. That is a win for somebody that is going to specialize in plug production. That is a win for somebody who's going to build the facilities required to grow kale closer to Michigan. And so when markets change, when there's these disruptions, the end and the beginning aren't the same, but the people that are able to see that transition are able to capitalize and be the businesses of the future. So that's where I would say your advice if heated, will never be as grim as you think, but it requires people to listen and find those opportunities. I, I think the key is we had a, a colleague that often talked about horizon scanning. And we sometimes don't do enough horizon scanning to be able to determine what the new opportunities are, what the realities of an emerging market would be. And so the one thing we do try to instill with folks is make sure you're doing some level of horizon scanning. Try to see what's around the next corner. Try to capitalize on what may be the next big thing. Is it a fad? Is it a trend? And try to figure that out early on so you can capitalize on it. Thank you so much for joining us. I think this was an outstanding conversation. Um, we both had fun and I think we both learned a lot. So I hope our listeners will as well. Is there anything else that you'd like to add or any place that our listeners can find you? Well, from a, a Penn State standpoint, probably the easiest thing is to reach me by email. And so uh, email is tgf2 at psu.edu. But that's probably the best way to, to reach out to me. 